Well, in a prior life, and by that I mean just like a few years ago, uh, I at one time was a a professional musician. Uh, Now, that is if we accept only the loosest definition of professional and an even looser definition of the word musician. Uh, But in college or in grad school, I had a, a little business with someone else that we would we both played violin, and we would hire ourselves out to go play at weddings. And people would find us on Facebook and, hey, come play on our wedding. They'd give us money. We'd play. It was awesome. But one time, my friend and I were uh, contracted to play for a wedding on Pensacola Beach. And uh, we were meant to play My Heart Will Go On from Titanic. Like, da, 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 da. It was supposed to be as beautiful as the bride enters and the sun is setting and the, the waves are lapping up on the, the white sand beaches. You can picture the scene, can't you? You've seen a wedding at the beach. We were supposed to accompany the beauty of the creation and the beauty of the ceremony with the beauty of our music. But as we began to play, it was apparent that something was wrong. Something was, was, was very wrong. Rather than the harmonious singing of, of two violins coming out in perfect harmony, the sound that was emitting out of the sound system, sound system was akin to two cats having it, out, having it out in the bottom of a drain pipe. We screeched our way through the bride's entrance, and we were looking at each other in horror like, what was going on here? It was just absolutely awful. Well, it turns out, here's what happened. As we began to play, it sort of happened. Sometimes, you know, the weddings, that people don't come in when they're supposed to. It sort of started more quickly than we planned. And so I started playing the music as it was written, while Nathania was playing what she had memorized. Problem is, I was playing in the key of D, and she was playing in the key of E-flat. Um, now, for those of you who are not musicians, you're like, that doesn't mean anything to me. That's the equivalent of half the football team taking the ball to the wrong end zone and tackling their own teammates. That's the musical equivalent of using a Phillips screwdriver as a chisel. It's the fingernails on the chalkboard. It is absolutely horrendous. There was no harmony that day. My heart will go on really resulted in, I think, maybe a few hearts being stopped, and I'm quite certain the Titanic once again sank that day. It was, it was a, rough, a rough moment in my musical career, and so I went into pastoring. So if pastoring doesn't work out, I don't have anything to fall back on. Uh, but listen, when musicians are playing in different keys and when the harmonies are not aligned, you don't get kind of beauty, you get horror, right? You get ugliness, you get dissonance, you get disaster. The result is not beauty. And the same, what is true in music is also true in our relationships. If we're going to have harmonious relationships, we need to have each person playing the right part. We need each section of the orchestra playing, the, playing from the same score. Everybody needs to be following the conductor. Imagine this morning if Chris came up here and says, everybody turn to wherever you would like in the hymn book today and sing whatever song you want. And so some people are singing Victory in Jesus. Other people are singing And Can It Be. We're all in different keys. And you came into the church service today, you would be like, Cloverleaf Baptist Church is weird. Like, you're expecting the snakes to be broken out at any minute when that sort of thing happens. In our relationships, we must have harmony if we are to display the beauty of the gospel. You see, God intends, as we see back at Ephesians 3 and verse 10, for the church to be a display of his glory. Look back at Ephesians 3 verse 10. God has sort of revealed this mystery, the gospel, to the intent that now into principalities and powers and heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Cloverleaf Baptist Church, the universal church of Jesus, in fact, is meant to be a display of the glory and the wisdom of God as he brings unity to the body. People should be able to look at Cloverleaf and see, man, the unity that those folks have, in spite of their difference, displays the power and the wisdom of God. But on a more granular level, we won't have unity in the church if we don't have unity in our homes. If everybody is coming into church with disharmony and we're sitting there and I'm not talking to you until you... We're not going to have unity in our churches. Now, you can fake it a little bit, and I think that happens from time to time, where you have a battle getting the kids on the way to church and yelling at them, we need to come and learn about the love of Jesus. I know that happens sometimes, but generally speaking, if there's not harmony in the home, there's not going to be harmony in the church. And when there is not harmony in the church or in the home, the music of the gospel will not be heard by a listening world. If the world's going to hear the sweet strains of the gospel, we need to have a harmonious orchestra, the church. And if we're going to have a harmonious orchestra, each section needs to be playing the right part. The first violins need to be playing their part, and the second violins and the cellos and the percussion. 
Each home needs to be playing from the same score, playing the music assigned to them. This text is all about giving the different parts of music to the different parts in the harmony, to the wives and to the, to the husbands. If we go along in chapter 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Paul will go on and talk to children and then to, to parents, and then he talks in, in verse 5, slaves, bondservants, servants, be obedient to them who are your masters. And you masters, verse 9, do the same things unto them. He's going to talk through all of the important relationships in our lives between husbands and wives, parents and children, between slaves and masters in our modern idiom, between employers and employees, to say the music of the gospel needs to be played with with harmony. God is calling us to have harmonious homes. Now, maybe you came in today, you're like, we don't have harmonious homes. How do we do it? How do we get to this place of having harmonious homes that display the gospel? Well, let me lay out for you the keys to having harmonious homes from this text. The first key to having a harmonious home is being filled by the Spirit. Right Now, we looked at this last week, verse 18. Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And then we get, in verses 19 to 21, these ING words that are giving the results. So when, when Christians are filled and controlled by the Spirit and filled with the presence and the power and the beauty and the perfection of God, there are these results. Verse 19 is worship, and then verse 20 is giving thanks. And then notice verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, be subject unto your own husbands. In the Greek, there's not actually a verb in verse 22. It just says, wives, to your own husbands. It's assuming that the verb of verse 21 submitting yourselves one to another, is being carried over into verse 22. In other words, verse 22 is, on one level, yes, he's beginning to address marriage, but he's addressing marriage in the context of be filled with the Spirit. Here's what happens sometimes with this text is we we jump into verse 22 like it is the standalone, hey, here's instructions for marriage, and we come to people, we like, hey, just follow like wives, you do your thing, husbands, you follow your role, and you have a great marriage. Forgetting the context, this requires something prior, to be filled and controlled by the Spirit. If you want to know if someone is Spirit-filled or not, yes, you'll see it in their worship, but more than anything, you'll see it in their relationships outside of this hour here. We can all show up to church and fake it pretty good. You can come here and be like, oh, man, I'm so consumed with the worship and sing these hymns and reverently read the Bible But whether or not you are controlled by the Spirit and filled with the presence of God, listen, that's going to come out in your relationships at the home, in the home. You can say, I'm filled with the Spirit, and I pray an hour a day, and I do this and I do that. But if your relationships in the home are marked by fighting and anger and pride, you're not filled with the Spirit. It's going to come out on what happens on Monday morning when the alarm clock goes off and when the baby needs a diaper change and when you forgot that appointment and when you're running late. That's going to be the test of whether or not you are filled by the Spirit. So submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of Christ is what verse 21 says. This is sort of giving an an overview of what's to come. Now, some people will say, look, mutual submission means there's no unique roles for husbands and wives. Well, very clearly, if you read verses 22 to 33, husbands are to to have headship, wives are to submit. When he says submitting to one another, he's saying within the church, you submit within the right relationships that God has placed you in. All of us are in some kind of relationship to some kind of authority. And what Paul is saying is all of us are to be submitted in those relationships. But all of this, notice, is in the fear of Christ. This is not just, well, submit to authority because if you don't, bad things will happen. But because ultimately we submit to the authority of Christ. This gives the common call to all of us. Sometimes we read a passage like this and we're like, Husbands have headship, and it's this horrible thing, and wives are supposed to submit, and this is also a horrible thing. By the way, it's very countercultural today to say that. But what we sometimes forget is that that submission is rendered out of fear and respect and reverence for the King of kings and Lord of lords. And it does not matter what your position of authority is. You may be the President of the United States. You are under the authority of King Jesus. You may be the head of your home, but you're under the authority of King Jesus. You may be the the boss at work. You're under the authority of King Jesus, and all authority is to be exercised under his authority. I want you to just understand something. These relationships, we, we get wives and husbands, parents and children, slaves and masters, three relationships. You notice Paul, in each of them, addresses the one who is under authority first. You know, address the wives and then the husbands, the children, then the parents, the slaves, then the masters. 
On one level, that gives dignity to those people. In the ancient world, wives were property, children were non-persons, and slaves could be bought, sold, killed at, at, at will. By addressing them directly, Paul is saying, though you might be under authority, you do not lack dignity. Being in a place under authority does not mean you are less valuable. It simply means you have been assigned a different part to play in the orchestra. All of us are under the authority of Christ. And he's addressing all as Christians. As Christians, this is pretty amazing to think about. All of us as Christians, no matter your gender, you are the bride of Christ. As a Christian, no matter your age, you're a child of God. As a Christian, you are a slave to Christ. So all of us, no matter our position, even if you're the boss at work, you're actually a servant of Jesus. Even if you're a parent in the home, you're a child of God. Even if you are the head of the house as the husband, you are submitted to Christ as the bride of Christ. That is our fundamental identity, and that sort of conditions everything that is said. This is not just about power and control and authority. This is about honoring and glorifying Christ. If we're going to have harmony in the home, just like if we're going to have harmony as a church, we need to be singing the same song in the same key. If we're going to have harmony in our relationships in the home, every musician needs to follow the same conductor, read from the same music, play at the same tempo in the same key. In other words, harmony in the home requires both husband and wife to have a right relationship with God. Not just the wife saying, I'm going to go to church But the husband saying, I'm going to value and prioritize spiritual things. Both saying, it's not just you submit to me. No, I'm submitting to Christ. And out of that, we have this harmonious, beautiful relationship. A marriage is only as strong as the individual's relationship with Christ. When both husband and wife are moving closer to God, they are moving closer to each other. But now moving into the text itself, you'll notice Paul in verse 22 addresses wives directly, then verse 25 addresses husbands directly. Just looking at the space, he says a whole lot more to the husbands because there's a greater responsibility to them. Of the three sections, he spends more time talking about marriage than he talks about work, than he talks about parenting, because marriage is the more fundamental relationship. There's something in that, by the way. Do not build your home around your children. They're not going to be a permanent fixture of your home. Do build your home around the marriage relationship. Because when the kids leave the home and you're empty nesters, guess what? You've still, you're still stuck with each other. Don't build your life around your work. You will eventually retire. You'll eventually be laid off. You'll eventually become injured on the job. If your identity is found in those other things, you'll be left in a place where you won't know who you are. Your fundamental identity is a child of God, as bride of Christ, as a servant of Christ. And the most important human relationship is that marriage relationship. So a harmonious home requires not only that we be filled with the Spirit, it requires, secondly, the wife's submission. And I worded that, initially I had a version of this this message where I had a submissive wife, but it's not so much a quality of who she is as an action she takes. Notice it's a, a, a verb. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. Now, in the parallel in Colossians, There is a a full verb here, submit yourselves. It's an action you take, not just I'm a submissive, meek person who never stands up for myself, but the voluntary choice to rank under God-given authority. That is what that word means, the voluntary choice to rank under God-given authority. Just as a sergeant and a private are members of the same military, so a husband and wife are members of the same family of God, yet each has a different role to play. Submission, as one person defined it, is the attitude and action of willingly and wholeheartedly respecting, yielding to, and obeying the authority of another. That's what wives are instructed to do in regards to their marriage. Now, notice the language. He does not say, women submit to men. He is not teaching patriarchy that men should rule and women should submit. But he's saying specifically in the context of marriage, wives should submit to their own husbands. Not submit to men, but submit to their own husbands. Within that covenant relationship, God has ordered authority. So submission involves respecting your husband. It means supporting your husband. It means choosing not to subvert his leadership. It means cheering him on as he leads. And the form of this, submit yourselves. I think that's a really good rendering. Not be subjected because you were forced to or coerced to or because you have to, but the voluntary choice. Let me say something. Involuntary submission is not submission. 1 Peter 3 talks about your your daughters of Abraham, if you submit without 
fear and, and terror. In other words, if you're submitting out of fear and terror because of the one in authority, that's not submission, that's abuse. And that's sinful. If you go, I have no choice but to submit, otherwise I'm going to be in big trouble, that's not submission. That's being bludgeoned into a place of becoming a doormat. That's not what is being described here. It is to be a God-glorifying voluntary choice. It's not something that a husband demands or coerces out of his wife. Did you notice when Paul speaks to the husbands, he does not say, husbands, lead your wives. No, he says, husbands, love your wives. If you're coming along and you have to submit to me and you're breaking this passage out, men, as a uh, beat your wife over the head with the Bible, you're doing it wrong. God commands the wives to submit. He does not command the husbands to force it. So wives, be subject to your own husbands. Submit to your own husbands. This is not voiceless passivity, but this is intelligent, voluntary recognition of God-given structure. Now, there's that little phrase at the end of verse 22, as unto the Lord. Now, we can read this wrongly to say, the wife should submit to her husband as if he were Jesus, and he has complete authority at home. That's not what that phrase means. Rather, it means the wife submits to her husband as part of her overall life of submission to Jesus. You do not render to anyone the level of loyalty you, you render to Christ, not your husband, not to the government, not to your boss, not to anyone, only to Jesus. But as part of your submission to Jesus, there is submission to the authorities that he has ordained. So you don't submit to your husband as if he were Jesus. Rather, you submit to him as part of your obedience to Christ. To say it differently, a right relationship with your husband of recognizing his authority is part of your discipleship. You say, I'm walking with Jesus. I'm really godly and really holy. I just don't respect my husband. You're not godly and holy. You're disobeying something Jesus commanded you to do. This also means that if a husband's authority clashes with Christ's authority, there may be a case where a husband commands a wife to do something that goes against Scripture. You, you're submitting ultimately to Jesus. You, you always go with the authority of Jesus, even if that means at times saying, I have to obey God rather than man. It means that as a wife, you can never submit to something that is immoral, something that is illegal, including abuse. Those who would use this passage to say, well, you have to just continue being abused are, are, are misinterpreting it and misusing it. So what is this based on? Now, I don't like this idea of submission. This very much goes against our modern idea of liberation and egalitarian and inequality. This seems really backward. I don't like this. It is based, first of all, on God's command. He commands it, all right? That should be enough for God to say, this is how you should live. But there's actually a reason, verse 23. We get that word for, I love that word for, because it's saying, here's the grounding, here's the rationale. For the husband is the head of the wife. Not the husband should be, the husband is the head of the wife. What's he basing that on? He's basing that on God's created order. Back in the Garden of Eden, before sin ever came in, before sin ever distorted human relationships, God had created Adam, and then he created Eve, and he gave Adam the task of leading his home. Listen, had there been no fall and no sin, there would still be authority. That's Paul's point in passages like 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 11. Sin, yes, has made authority dangerous, and submission sometimes onerous, but both are part of God's good plans. As you submit to your husband, you are submitting to God's command and to the order that he has programmed into creation. But we go on in verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. This is all imaging the gospel, the relationship between the, the, the people of God, the redeemed people of God called the church. We're not talking about an institution or an organization. We're talking about the body of believers from every tribe and tongue and place and time in history. For even as Christ is the head of the church, the leader of the church, the ruler of the church, so the husband's the head of the wife. He's the savior of the body. So this is based not only on creation's order, but on Christ's headship. Marriage is ultimately a God-ordained picture of a spiritual reality. It pictures the relationship between Jesus and his people. And so to, to the wives today, when you choose to say, I'm going to submit to my husband's imperfect authority. Listen, every husband's authority is imperfect. Every husband in this room is a sinner. But when you choose to submit imperfectly to that imperfect authority, you are declaring the reality that Jesus is the ruler over his church. Back to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Speaking of Jesus, 
God has exalted him over every authority, verse 21, and has put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who filleth all in all. Jesus exercises his headship, not at the expense of the church, but for the benefit of the church. The church flourishes and benefits because Jesus is the head. And so it is in the home. When you submit to the authority of the husband, you are agreeing with the creation order. You are operating your life and your home according to the owner's manual, reflecting the headship of Jesus. Now, there's this little phrase in verse 23, and he is the savior of the body. Who's the he referring to? Back to Ephesians 5. What's referring to Jesus? Jesus is the savior of the body. This is not saying husbands are the saviors of their wives. I I saw a cringy quote the other day from a very prominent pastor who I respect who took this to say, well, husbands rescue their wives from lives of loneliness and lacking meaning. That is not what this means, all right? My wife would have plenty of meaning and joy and success in life without me. In fact, I'd probably hold her back more often than than anything else. No, this is not saying that men are the saviors of their husbands. Say, uniquely, Jesus is the savior of the body. Listen, if you are looking to marriage to save you and give you meaning, it won't deliver. Look to Jesus and Jesus alone. Marriage does not save you. Jesus saves you. Of that word Savior, it's used, I think, 23 times in the New Testament. Every single time it is used, it's either used of God or of Jesus, never of any human being. Don't look to your, to your husband to save you from a life of meaninglessness. No, look to Christ. Look to Christ. So we come down here to verse 24. Therefore, summarizing, as the wife is subject, or as the, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands, then notice this, in everything. That sure cuts against the, 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 the modern feminist ideas of what we have of you don't need any. As the church, so the wife. Because marriage pictures Christ in the church, wives should submit like the church submits to Christ. In everything does not mean, in absolutely everything, including if he tells you to do something sinful. Obviously, it does not mean that. But it does mean in not just in gritting your teeth saying, fine, I'll go along with this stupid decision that he's making. No, it, even in the attitudes and in the responses and in the tone of the voice to say, I respect my husband's God-given authority. It's not because your husband is smarter or stronger or better at making decisions. A lot of us aren't. But it's because Jesus has put husbands in a place of headship in the home. So what does it mean to submit in everything? It does not mean fostering laziness and irresponsibility. If he's saying, well, go out and do my job for me. You should never condone or endorse or help someone along in sinning. It's not something that's coerced. Nor is it conditioned on her husband's demeanor, morality, perfection, or love. Say, well, it says husbands love their wives. So if my husband loves me, then I'll submit to him. No, this is a command that's just given without strings attached to it. So what does it mean? It's going to mean respecting his God-given role. It's going to mean hearing and heeding his counsel and advice. It means refusing to demean him, even when you disagree. This is important. You can't say, I'm submitted to my husband, but I just run him down all the time and make him feel like he's dumb. And it certainly cannot mean that you're going to go and tear him down behind his back. Occasionally people will come, Pastor, we've got a prayer request. Please pray for my husband. He's such a moron. Like, no, 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 that's not respectful. Not literally in those words, but I've heard as much. If you have a disagreement with your husband, that should not be something that is aired out with other people where you convey that, well, he, he doesn't really know what he's doing here. It means always respecting him in public. It means contributing to his decisions. It doesn't mean he makes all the decisions and I just say yes and sort of follow along 10 feet behind him like they do in Muslim cultures. No, it means you contribute and be like, hey, I don't think that's a really good decision. Here's why I want you to succeed in leading this home. It means saying I want you to have a vision and I'm going to support that, this, that, that vision that you have means I might step back so he can lead. I said, well, my husband doesn't really lead. Whenever he does, cheer him on. You don't know how much it means for a man to, to know that his wife is proud of him and that she supports him and she thinks he's doing a great job. It could be that he's given up leading because every time he tries to lead, you critique and criticize everything he does. So maybe giving those words of affirmation would go a long way. So a harmonious home requires we all play from the same score. We all play the part that God's assigned to us, and he's assigned to wives to submit to their husband's leadership. But thirdly, in the biggest chunk of this passage, in the large, longest part of this message, 
is that a harmonious home requires a husband's love. Husbands, verse 25, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church. We think that the command that Paul gives to wives is onerous. The responsibility he lays on husbands is infinitely more so. Love like Jesus loved. Let me give you some ideas of what love means, because I think we have ideas that have been given to us sort of by our culture that gives us a, a narrow and distorted understanding of what love is. We all see the, the bumper stickers, love is love, and if you're sort of attracted to someone, that's love, and it's romance, and it's emotion that comes and goes, and we fall into it, and we fall out of it, and it's this, all this falling that's going on. Okay, what is love biblically? What is it that love does? Well, I'll just note first off in verse 25, this is an imperative. Husbands, love your wives. We all know the, the, the word uh, agapao, agape. This is love that acts and love. For God so loved the world that he, that he gave. It's a love of action, not just a love of feeling, though it includes feeling. I want to give you some thoughts here on love. Number one here, love obeys. Husbands, love your wives. You know what we do when God gives us commands? We obey them, which means this is unconditional love. This is not love that you give to your wife when she meets a certain criteria and that is, re, that is taken away when she fails to. This is love that you give day in and day out to the wife that God has given to you no matter what. Now, it's interesting. Paul does not say husbands lead your wives. He does not say husbands rule your wives. This is in a form that is known as a household code and the Greeks and the Romans and the Jews, they had household codes back in Paul's day. But normally the instruction that was given to husbands is make sure you rule your wives because they can be real pesky. right? They can be real trouble if you don't kind of control them. Paul surprises us, and he surprises, really, Western history has, been, has never been the same because of verse 25. We take it for granted, of course you should have love in marriage, but that was not the case in the ancient world. Marriages were arranged and wives were property. And there's even the statement from, I think it's Plutarch or one of these, or Demosthenes, one of these Greek guys who says, we, we, we have mistresses for our pleasures and we have concubines just to satisfy what we want. And then you have wives to produce legitimate offspring. That's the only reason that the ancients had wives, to make sure you have a legitimate offspring who can carry on the family name. Paul subverts all of that and changes, revolutionarily changes human history by saying, love your wives. We take it for granted because we've had 2,000 years of Christian influence. It's the air that we breathe. But feel how surprising this would have been to Christians living in Ephesus. It's a present imperative, meaning this is a way of life. It's not just, I loved her one time and I can go. No, this is day in and day out, every moment, developing this love for him. It is deep appreciation and high regard. It's not merely personal attraction. Harold Honer put it this way, love is affection shown irrespective of merit, even to the undeserving. Right? Love shown even to the undeserving. A husband's love is not conditioned on his wife's beauty, on her submission, or on her reciprocity. It is unconditional. Now, Paul's already talked about love back just in verse 2. If Ephesians 5 be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and given himself for us. Exact same language he's going to use here. Verse 3, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not once be named among you as become a saints. In the context of Ephesians 5, genuine love for one's spouse means absolute faithfulness. Sexual sin, unfaithfulness is absolutely the opposite of love. Again, that runs against everything the Greeks and Romans thought. They said, hey, you, a, a man can be married, and he can go have what we would call today an affair with anyone, whenever, however, how often he wanted to, and it would be totally fine. Now, the wives weren't allowed to, but the men were, as long as it wasn't with a married woman. Paul says, love your wives with an exclusive love. Loving your wife is going to mean protecting that relationship. It's going to mean having smart boundaries in your relationships with the women you work with and the women you interact with. I know it's gotten a lot of bad press, but the Billy Graham rule said, never be alone with any woman other than my wife. A lot of wisdom in that. A lot of wisdom in that, as much as people want to, want to poo-poo that today. Loving your wife is going to mean hating pornography. It's going to mean guarding your heart. It's going to mean guarding your relationship. It's going to mean guarding your eyes. Love obeys this unconditional faithful love. 
But we come along here, and at the heart of Paul's statement is this, love gives. Not only does love obey, love gives. Love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it by the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Love gives. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. How do we know that he loved the church? Is he gave himself for it. Now, this idea of Christ loving the church, of Jehovah having a bride, is not something new Paul comes up with. We find it in the Old Testament. The book of Hosea pictures, he has this relationship with a woman named Gomer, and it pictures the, the pursuing love of Yahweh for Israel. Brian read Isaiah 54 today. Your maker is your husband. This relationship between God and his people is a marriage-like relationship. In fact, Paul tells us God comes up with marriage to give us a fit illustration for the kind of love and attachment God has to his people. But here's the point. Love your wives even as Christ loved the church. Say, am I doing a good job loving my wife? You might think, well, man, I maybe love my wife a little too much. This is getting a little out of hand. Do you love her as much as Jesus loves you? When you've met that level, you can sort of say, okay, I can back off a little bit. I'll take my foot off the gas. The measure of your love, men, is not social convention of, oh, let me see what all the neighbors are doing. Well, they, they never spend time with their family, so I'm by spending a little bit of time, I'm doing better than they are. This is not measuring our love by what society does. It's measuring our love by what Christ did. It's not measured by personal feelings. It's measured by Christ's sacrificial love for his bride. Now, notice the verbs here. Christ loved, gave himself, sanctified by cleansing, presents to himself. These verbs really run from one horizon of eternity to the other. According to Ephesians 1 and verse 4, Christ set his love upon us before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and without blame before him in love. So Christ loved us, talks about what happens before we were even born. Like before creation even existed, God set his love on us. And then that love acts in time. Jesus came to this world and died for his church, came into this world and died for us. So his love acted. And then we come along to verse 26, his love sanctifies and cleanses us. When we come to faith in Jesus, our sins are washed away. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We're declared holy and righteous. That's what sanctified means. Is We're regarded as holy in his sight. And then one day, the bride will be presented to the bridegroom. The church of Jesus will be presented to Christ in glory. When Jesus returns and all the saints are gathered, we'll be presented, as it were, as a bride to the bridegroom in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And for all eternity, we will be with our Savior. These verbs run across the firmament from the horizon of eternity past to eternity future. It flows from the mountain spring of election, and it pours out into the gulf of eternal glory. Now, here's my point. Christ's love for his bride is extensive. Eternity past to eternity future. It's expressive. He tells us that he loves us, and it is expensive. It aims at the eternal joy and glory of the church. Jesus is seeking the eternal glory of the triune God, not at our expense, but in our enjoyment of him. His love took concrete form at the cross. He gave himself for us. His life was not wrenched from him unwillingly, but he willingly came as a lamb and gave himself up for our sins. That's how bad our sin is. Jesus had to die on the cross for it. He's not dying as an unwilling martyr, but as a voluntary sacrifice in the place of his people. Now, here's my point. Love means sacrifice. I love my wife, but I won't adjust anything in my life about to, to, to show that to her. I love my wife, and all my hobbies are exactly the same. I love my wife, but really, if anyone were to look at me, it would, it's actually work that I love. I love my wife, but given the choice between hanging out with her or going hunting, ah, easy choice. Love means sacrifice. Now, this is not just the grand gesture of saying, I would take a bullet for my wife. Hopefully you would. But it's not limited to just that grand gesture of taking a bullet for your wife or confronting a would-be assailant. Every man should be willing to do that and be ready to do that, be ready to lay their lives, their lives down for their families. But how many men are willing to say, oh, yeah, I'd, give, I'd take a bullet for my wife, but I'm not willing to give anything up for her? Loving your wife, men means investing time and effort in the relationship. A, a, a lot of us think this way. Well, I go to work for 40, 50, 60 hours a week to provide her stuff. But is it, re is it really stuff that she wants? 
How many people are like, oh, yeah, you, you, you bought me a new car. You must really love me, but you never hang out with me. It's investing time into the relationship. It's choosing to be present. It's sometimes saying, I'm going to give up some of the exercise of pursuit of my hobbies so I can help her pursue hers. I'm going to give her undivided attention so she can listen or so she can speak and, and I can listen. I'm going to go work on those habits that I know irritate her. Okay, you bite your nails all the time. You know that bugs her. I, I'm, because I love her, I'm going to try to break that habit. It means going to school and learning what your wife loves and then saying, I'm going to do that. It means I'm going to go to war killing petty selfishness and fostering humble service. The opposite of love is what? Selfishness. And nothing will kill your, your marriage more quickly than selfishness. So love gives, but love also leads. We could put it simply, love, love bleeds, but love also leads. We see that in verses 26 and 27. Christ's love for his church is not just static. I died for y'all, you're good to go. But he actively leads us to greater and greater holiness. So it says that he cleansed the church by, or sanctified the church by cleansing, verse 26. And eventually he's going to lead the church to glory. And what a day that will be when we're presented to our Savior. So why did Jesus die for the church? So it would be cleansed, it would be set apart. So the church would be glorified in his presence. And by the way, beloved, when we as Christians are presented to Jesus, we will be absolutely beautiful and spotless and perfect and sinless in his sight. We will be arrayed in the white garments of his righteousness, not garments that we ourselves cleaned up, but garments that he gave to us. He makes us beautiful by his own gift. Ezekiel 16 is an extended metaphor about how Yahweh has entered into a relationship with Israel, made her his bride, and then she has cheated on him with all these idols. And God sort of looks, sort of poetically describes that. He says, I washed you in water. I thoroughly washed off your blood, anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you the sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey, and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor which I had bestowed on you. When we stand before Jesus, when we enter heaven, God's not there in heaven being like, I guess I'll tolerate all of these redeemed sinners, because I guess I have to. No, he delights in us, and he, he finds joy and sings over his people. And that we will be in his presence glorious and beautiful and perfect, not because of our works, not because of our righteousness, not because of what our hand has done, but because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross and because of the righteousness, righteousness that he's imputed to us and the beauty he himself has given to us. Verse 27 says that he might present it to himself. This is really jarring in the Greek. That he himself to himself. Okay, I've never been to a wedding where the groom walked his own wife down the aisle. But when we enter heaven, that's what's going to happen. He's chosen us. He's redeemed us. He's cleansed us. He's clothed us. He's made us beautiful. He's gotten all the wrinkles and spots out. He's made us absolutely perfect. And then he loves us not because of what we bring to the table, but because what he put on us. We bring nothing to the table. We have no beauty of our own except that which Christ gives to us. Now, that's what this metaphor is all about. What is marriage all about? Is picture that. Now, here, here, here's the point I want to make in regards to marriage. Christ's self-sacrificial love for his people is far more than unconditional acceptance. It's love that transforms and leads. Now, husbands, one aspect of our love is leading. No, you are not Jesus. You do not try to change your wife. Don't, don't marry someone being like, yeah, I can't stand it, but hopefully I can change them. But you should lead your wife. Love and leadership often get pitted against each other today. For Paul, love and leadership go together. One of the ways, men, that you show your wife that you love her is you love her where she is and you lead her to where she will be one day. Jesus loves his church by leading it to holiness and glory, and husbands should lead their wives by leading them to holiness and glory. Notice all the that's in verse 26, Christ loved the church, that he might do this, that he might do that. There's goals. Love is not this emotional ecstasy that just sort of happens automatically, where it's just like, this is so easy. 
Some people say, if I knew that I was really in love, it would be easy. No, no, love is intentional, and it moves towards goals. Let me give you a definition of love. Love is seeking the ultimate and eternal good of the one that you love, even at great expense to yourself. That's what love is. Love's, you say, oh, I, love, I love this person too much to confront their sin. No, love seeks their ultimate and eternal good, even at great expense to yourself. So that means leading, taking the leadership in the home. Listen, it would make your wife submitting to you a whole lot easier if you led well. Take the initiative to see your family in church, men. Take the initiative to encourage prayer and Bible reading. Take the initiative to set the family's direction. Take the initiative to have a vision and direction for your home and to communicate that. Now let me give you a fourth dimension of love. Verse 28, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. Love cares. So love obeys, love gives, love leads, and love cares. All of these facets of love are essential. You can't say, well, I'll just do the action part and like do the, you know, the sacrifice. I'm good at that, but, man, the affection side of things, I'm not good at that, so I won't do that. No, all of these dimensions are part of the love that God commands us to exercise. Now, here's the argument here. When you get married, the Bible says that you become one flesh with your wife. That's what verse 31 is quoting Genesis 2. You leave your father and mother, you cleave to your wife, and you become one flesh. So this analogy of saying you should love your wife like your own body is not too far-fetched. Now, we also have the command in Scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as what? Thyself. Here that's sort of tweaked a little bit to say, love thy wife as thou lovest thine own body. All of us naturally love our bodies. We feed it, and we clothe it, and when it's cold, we try to keep it warm, and when it's hot, we try to cool it off, and we, we try to take good care of it. And you say, well, what about those people who, who are really depressed? E- even in that situation, you're concerned about how you feel. We naturally do this. He's saying in the same way, we should naturally care for our wives like we would care for our own bodies. But those words nourish and cherish, you could say, well, why not just say feed and clothe? That's kind of cherish is keep it warm, nourish it is to make sure it's well fed. These are really tender words in Greek. These are really emotionally laden words in Greek. They require husbands, yes, if you're not providing physically for your wife, you're failing. If you, if you provide not for your own, you're worse than an unbeliever, First Timothy 5.18. But it means so much more than physical provision. This is talking about affectionate love. This is talking about emotional love. One commentator puts it this way, nourishing and cherishing are not simply matters of supplying the body with barely enough food, clothing, and shelter to enable it to eke out a mere existence. It refers instead to the bounteous, elaborate, unremitting, and sympathetic care. Man, that's what God calls us to towards our wives. That kind of care, that kind of connecting on an emotional level. I'm a man, I don't do that. I'm a man, I'm masculine, I'm tough. I don't want to give in to all of this mamby-pamby stuff. You read 1 Corinthians 13 lately? Love is patient. Love is kind. Here's the thought. If loving your wife is the most masculine thing you can do according to God, because God writes the rules, not you and me, right? Then, Then building our lives around what God describes love to be is masculine. Masculinity is not being a jerk who goes around as a big ogre, dragging your wife around the hair as you leave the cave to go kill an elk. No, that's, that's not masculinity. Masculinity is love. Masculinity is gentleness. Masculinity is meekness. Masculinity is seeking not your own, vaunting not yourself. Caring love. Now, Paul can't keep Jesus out of this too long. He keeps on coming back to this. No one ever yet hated his own flesh, nourished and cherisheth, verse 29, even as the Lord the church, for we're members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. He's taken two metaphors that he's used for the relationship with Christ and the church. Christ is the head and we're the body. And now Christ is the groom and we're the bride. And he fuses them together, verse 31. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother shall be joined unto his wife and they too shall be one flesh. Is it that we're the body of Christ or the bride of Christ? And the answer is yes. When you become a believer in Jesus, you enter into this incredible relationship with Christ, that you're in Christ. You are eternally united to him. You become part of his body is the image. That's what the church is called, the body of Christ. We also become the bride of Christ. And guess what? Jesus never lets his bride go. Jesus will never terminate the marriage. 
This is why divorce runs contrary to the plan of God, is because the relationship between Christ and his people is permanent and eternal and cannot be broken. And his illustration should be the same. But love cares. Now, verse 31, I've, I've read it already. You leave your father and mother, you're joined under your wife. It's giving us a definition of marriage. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when God makes Eve and brings Adam and Eve together, and, and then there's this pronouncement. This is, this is why. God's made man and woman for each other, to, to be with each other, to complement each other, to be a one-flesh relationship, to be the joining of two lives. So you leave father and mother, and you cleave to your wife. This tells me this. When you marry someone, you have established a new home and a new family. When Rachel and I first got married, people were like, oh, so when are you going to have a family? We are a family. And having children is not a necessary ingredient to being a family. Being covenanted to do each other as husband and wife, that's what makes a family. But here's my point in verse 31. Love commits. This idea of members of his body, of his flesh, and his bones is covenantal language. Joining to your wife, that word be joined to your wife is the idea of being glued together. It's like taking two pages uh, in a book and then la- you know, just soak it in some, some super glue and put those two pages together. Try getting those apart. That's what marriage is, is the joining not just of two bodies in a sexual relationship, but the joining of two lives on every level where you're one flesh. Yes, you're still two unique individuals in God's eyes, responsible to him, but united together on a profound level. I mean, it means joint bank accounts. It means sharing life together. It means opening your heart to one another. It means refusing to keep secrets from each other. It's commitment. And in our commitment-allergic age, few things are a greater testimony of the power of the gospel for two sinners. That's why, the way, every marriage is two sinners, which means marriage is going to be hard. You've got two really, really selfish people who are to unite in the closest relationship possible this side of heaven. It's going to be hard, but there's going to be commitment that you cling to, for better, for worse, till death do us part. It's not simply about two people living under the same roof who happen to like each other. It's not simply about, well, we love each other today, but we might not tomorrow. Love is commitment. Love commits. Christ commits himself to his church, and a husband should commit himself to his wife and vice versa. But I want to come to a final requirement Verse 32, this is a great mystery. This mystery is great. Mystery, something that was hidden, now revealed, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Brings us finally to this, a harmonious home requires the gospel's power. What Paul is saying here is I'm not really talking primarily about marriage. I'm really talking about Jesus and his love for his church. And marriage is but a picture of that reality. The gospel is what gives marriage its meaning. And why is it marriage is this universal thing people do in every culture and place in history? Why is that? It's because marriage is reflecting a spiritual reality, whether we realize that or not. When God established marriage, he did not simply do it to give us lifelong companionship so we wouldn't be lonely when when we get old. He didn't simply do it so that we would produce more image bearers He established marriage in part to declare eternal realities. In other words, the point of marriage is not marriage. It's not romance. It's not love. The point of marriage is the gospel. Christ loved the church. I'll say the ultimate key to having a harmonious home, the ultimate key to having a marriage that will last is recognizing that marriage is not ultimate but recognizing that the gospel is marriage is a mirror. Christ is the reality. Marriage is the shadow. Heaven is the substance. Marriage is to the gospel what a picture is to a sunset. Marriage is to the gospel what an architect's model is to the building or what a Hot Wheels car is to a Ferrari. And you will be sorely disappointed in life if you think that marriage is designed to fulfill you in every way. Oh, marriage is wonderful. But it's not ultimate. If you get married believing the other person can and must satisfy every longing in your heart, you will be a nightmare to be married to because you will try to wring every drop of happiness out of the other person rather than saying, my relationship is with Christ and now I can enjoy marriage for what it is. 
Now, verse 33 concludes, Nevertheless, coming back to marriage, let every one of you in particular, every single individual member, all of you are under the sound of my voice, so love his wife even as himself and his wife, see that she reverence her husband, just summarizing what he said. But the point here being the gospel gives us the model for marriage. Because the story of the Bible is about a marriage. Yes, it begins with a human marriage in the Garden of Eden, and it ends with a heavenly marriage in the new heavens and the new earth. It's a story of the father getting a bride for his son, which is us. The story of the gospel is the pattern for marriage. You want a good marriage? Pattern it according to the gospel. God commands us to love. You know why we are enabled to, lo- enabled to love one another? How is it that I can love a sinner? Because God loved a sinner. How can I forgive someone who wrongs me? Is because God forgave someone who wronged him infinitely. How can I give grace to someone who doesn't deserve it? Because God gave grace to someone who didn't deserve it. How can I commit myself to someone who is fickle? God's commanded himself, or committed himself to someone who is fickle. Now, just a final word as we, as we conclude. The fact that marriage points to something beyond itself, the fact that marriage itself is not ultimate, is such a hope-giving word to those who are single, those who are celibate, those who are widowed. Because sometimes we get the idea that while the culture so denigrates marriage, the church kind of puts it up on a pedestal, and you kind of feel this like, man, I'm a defective human being if I'm not married. The Apostle Paul wasn't married. Jesus of Nazareth was not married. And because the ultimate reality is Christ and the church, your identity as the bride of Christ is not hindered or helped in any way by being married or by being single. In fact, there's a a blessing at times in being single that you can glorify God in ways that you wouldn't be able to when you're married. And so I say that as a word of, of, of encouragement and hope because... Marriage itself is not ultimate. A lack of being married is not a defect that needs to somehow be fixed. Now, the desire to be married is a good thing, and if God gives the opportunity, by all means, take it. But it's not a flaw that, oh, man, I'm single. There must be something wrong with me. We're made for Christ. So the Bible begins with a marriage. It ends in a marriage. We live in a world of -of out-of-tune instruments, of orchestras that are playing in different keys, of homes that are falling apart where not only is the orchestra not playing the same note, but the members of the orchestra are having fights. We live in a world of dissonant music. In such a world, one of the greatest advertisements we can give to the gospel are homes that are harmonious. So will you commit to tuning your heart to the pitch of God's word? Will you commit to saying, rather than trying to play the part of the second violins, I'll play the part of the first violin. I'll take the part that God has given to me. Instead of insisting that we all sing melody, I'm willing to take the harmonies and the, the bass part and the different parts that make the music so beautiful. Are you willing to ultimately follow the direction of the heavenly conductor? Will you commit yourself to being spirit-filled, to being submissive, to being loving, to being gospel-focused? Those, those are the keys to a harmonious